Good morning, church. Wow, that was powerful. That's what happens after baptism is you get boldness. Um, it's good to be in God's house this morning. Turn to the person next to you and say, I am so glad that you're here. And if no one's next to you, just tell yourself, I'm glad that I'm here. <laughs> if you're just tuning in online for the first time, or if this is the first time that you're here, um, welcome home. My name is Pastor Manny. My name isn't Pastor Manny. My name is Manny, or Emmanuel, but I'm one of the pastors here. Now, this past uh, couple of weeks, we have started a series called My Heart Four. It's basically um, the subjects and the themes that are on the hearts of the pastors here, and we get to present them to you. So the, the series began with My Heart for Peacemaking, then My Heart for Truth, um, and last week with uh, Pastor David, My Heart for the Future, and today we'll be talking about My Heart for Mission. My Heart for Mission. Mission is a topic that's near and dear to my heart for several reasons, and it might be to you as well. First, because my family and I would not have known Jesus if it weren't for missionaries that came to Iran many years ago, they learned the language, they got embedded into the culture, and began building friendships, sharing and caring. It's not just sharing, but caring for many who did not know Jesus. And so missionaries from Holland and the U.S. invested their lives by introducing so many to Jesus and in my mother's hometown, right, south of, right off of the, the uh, coast of the, uh, the Caspian Sea. Um, which has, by the way, the best caviar in the world. Here we go. All right, fish eggs. Let's go. She was about 13 when she gave her heart to the Lord. She was invited to a prayer gathering where she learned about Jesus. She was hungry to learn. And she was eager to find out who this Jesus was. And so these missionaries from Holland, they would correspond back and forth with her, those that were back in Holland. They would send her books and literature and she would read all the books she can. And they would be, I mean, it's not like email today where you just say, you know, you write your email and you press send. They got it. It would take a while for these books to go back and forth. That's how it was in the old days. I'm not calling my mom old. Mom, sorry. <laughs> so sorry. On the other side, my father was a young Muslim living in a small village in Isfahan, Iran. Dissatisfied with life, he prays to Allah, and he asks him for help. He gets to a point where he says, I don't know the meaning of life. Will you show yourself to me, Allah? And like any good Muslim, washes his hands, his face, and does prayers. But interesting, he asks for help and for peace, but he doesn't find it. Desperate to find answers in his existential crisis, he prays to Buddha, because he's heard of Buddha. He prays to Mary, because she's in the Quran, the Muslim book. She, uh, he prays to Confucius and a whole host of other religious figures crying out for help. Will you reach out to me? What is the purpose of life? Why do I exist? Why am I alive? And he cries out, what is real? What is true? And yet again, no response. Then he goes back to God and he says, I want to make a deal with you. He says, 
I've prayed to you and I've reached out to you so many times. You have not answered. You have not reached back to me. In the Quran, it says that on judgment day, we will all be judged according to what we've done and what we haven't done. And so I'm telling you now, God, I'm telling you now that when that day comes, I don't owe you a darn thing. Makes sense. Makes sense. He probably used a different word. But pretty much saying that when that day comes, I asked you to reach back to me, and you did not, so you can't judge me for anything. Because I came to you, and you did not come to me. You stayed quiet, so I owe you nothing. The next day in his room, he turns on the radio, a shortwave AM station that was broadcasted out of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, now known as the, Vo the Voice of Hope radio broadcasting network, funded by faithful Christians in America. He hears someone on the radio wave, kind of fuzzy, say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God over all. And you can trust him with your life. He saves. He's like, Jesus? I prayed to his mama and she didn't do anything. What's he gonna do? So that evening, he does what every good Muslim does, washes his hands and his face, gets on his knees, face towards Mecca, and he prays to Al-Masih, which is Jesus, who is the highest prophet in Islam under the prophet Muhammad. With tears in his eyes, he confesses his sins and says, Jesus, save me. To make a long story super short, he goes to bed, something wakes him up like a thousand volts of electricity. He jumps out of bed, completely freaked out. Doesn't know if he's awake or he's alive. And he says, what is this? I went to bed depressed and, I'm, and I'm, there's this joy in my heart that I cannot explain. Maybe he thought it was bad kebab the night before. I don't know. But something happened two in the morning that changed his life forevermore and now by that moment our lives have been changed as well. And all of a sudden, I mean this story gets really juicy, but in the middle of trying to figure out what happened, he hears an audible voice speak to him, calling his name in the middle of saying what is going on and, he's, and he asks him, have you forgotten who you prayed to last night? He remembers falls back on his face, and that voice says, I am he. The story is long. But I will say that after I was born, my parents met and I was born, there was severe persecutions in Iran, and I'll save that for another time, where Christians were found beaten in their churches behind their pulpit. They would walk home from church being spied by, by government spies, butchered, murdered, laid on the street. Christians hung, pastors hung from trees. My dad's best friend, who he served with in the middle of the most challenging time in Iran when the Shah was being kicked out of Iran and the, and the Muslim government was coming in. He was found hung on a tree. His wife, blind, left three kids behind. That was the reality. And so, God was gracious, people were gracious, 
The UN was gracious. America was gracious. We were smuggled out in the 80s, lived in Europe for a little bit, and then we came to the US as refugees on asylum. That's my story. So I stand here today not on my own deeds, but celebrating the idea of mission, the sacrifice of many invisible people that helped a broken family come and find life and find opportunity and pretty much to not die. I will never meet these people. I will never know who they are, just like you. I don't know what organizations you have given to, but it affects people around the world and in our backyard. And you might never meet them, but one day in the age to come, they'll come up to you and say, that was me. Thank you for your generosity. And I can't wait for that day. This is why mission is so close to my heart. It's a big part of why I stand here today. But there's also a much bigger reason why mission is mission critical, if I can see it that way. More than just my story. And that is where we are going to park this morning. Can I pray? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a missional God. Everything you do is on point for a reason. And today, God, will you align our hearts and our minds with yours? And will you invigorate your church today to not see mission as something just far away, but as the identity of the church, as the identity of each of us today. As you have called us to move into action, not to stay seated, waiting to see action. In Jesus' name, we say it together. Amen. Amen. Now, who shops at Ikea? Raise your hands. Who loves Ikea? Or, no, I mean, I love it, but like you, you go to Ikea. All right, all right, all right. Um, I can't tell you the countless times that I've gone to Ikea to buy furniture. Um, and so this, many, many years ago, this, this one time I went to Ikea and I got what, it was like a cabinet of some sort. And I got it, I was so excited, but not excited to build it. I wish I could pay somebody to build it for me, but I, you gotta do what you gotta do. You know, you gotta do what you gotta do. So this, all the stuff is on the floor, the tools are ready to go, and I look for the thing that I need to fix the thing that I bought. And guess what? It wasn't there. Ikea ruined me. It wasn't there. So what do you do? What do you do? I was, I was livid, honestly. I can't do anything. It's just a bunch of stuff that's just sitting there. The problem was there was no manual. Now, Jesus was a carpenter. You could probably figure it out. His dad was a carpenter. He could figure it out. I'm not a carpenter, nor is my daddy a carpenter. So I went online to find the model number, and I was successful. But it was annoying because I needed two things that I did not have. First, a vision or a picture of what I was building. I needed to see the end product and then figure out the steps to get to the end product. It's like building a house. You can't build a house without having the vision in mind, and then it's drawn up in blueprints, and, and then you start with the foundation and put the walls up and do all that stuff, right? The second thing was I needed a guy to tell me where to begin and to walk me every step of the way. How many of you have ever asked a question in related to, to your faith? What is the end goal? Like, what's, what's, the, what's the final vision of all this? Is Christianity just like an insurance policy? Come to church, give, do some good things, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm, it saves you from bad things in the end? Is that, is that, 
Is that the thin response to a grand faith? Who's ever asked that question? So what happens in the end? It's an important question. Let me say it this way. I believe in Jesus. I go to church. I read my Bible. I serve. I give. But what is the goal? What is God building? Another question is, what is the grand vision of the creator God? Let me say it this way too. If creation is riding on a train, all of creation is riding on a train, and the train tracks are symbolic of a forward progression of time and history, where is God moving it toward? Do we have a picture of this destination? Do we have a portrait of this future? A grand vision that helps us see the end goal in the present. Last week, Pastor David hit a home run message on my heart for the future. What is the future all about? And why does it matter today? While preparing to speak on mission, which is close to my heart because of my story, it became abundantly clear that there's another reason why the conversation on mission is deeply close to my heart. It is because of the grand vision. And I'll tell you why. Critical in our understanding of God, in our theology, and in our understanding of, of the church's identity, our identity, the purpose of the church, and even why we exist as followers is God's grand picture. It's too fundamentally important to not even think about. I want to say it again. It's too fundamentally important to push it aside and just go on being the happy Christian that we are. Because we cannot fully understand the depth and the importance of mission if we cannot understand what God's vision is. We can't understand mission if we don't understand God's vision. So, can we know this vision? Can we know this grand vision? The good news is, yes, we can. Personally, the day that I got a better glimpse, and I'm being honest with you, the day that I got a glimpse of, of God's ultimate vision for all of creation, let me tell you, it, it's like it brought color into my world. It made sense. I finally figured out why Jesus did what he did. Why he healed the sick, raised the dead to life, cast out demons, hung out with the outcast. It all made sense. I felt like I was born again, again, the day that I found out or I stumbled into the idea of God's grand eternal vision for the entire cosmos, and the Greek word cosmos means universe, so the whole world. It all made sense to me, and it changed my life. And I hope I can kind of poke and prod at your heart this morning. That everything began to make sense. So yes, the Bible tells us but it, it doesn't give us this 4K vivid, high-definition picture of this future vision. It doesn't. It gives us this, this portrait of a future vision with, with faded paintbrushes. The scripture paints God's vision for us, and it's mission critical that the idea, that our idea of ministry, mission, and our entire understanding of the life of Jesus should be shaped by this. God's vision is found in this mysterious and highly 
controversial book found at the end of your Bibles called the book of Revelation. Now there's a thousand and one views and one day we can talk about it. Um, or you can just call Pastor Jeff. He'd love to talk to you about it too. <laughs> Pastor Jeff's really smart. So. <laughs> this is how it paints God's ultimate vision because we have to get the mission but we, we have to start with vision. And this is what it says. God's ultimate vision for the entire world in the, in the, in, in the Greek called cosmos. Read this with me. Revelation 11:15. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ or his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. The next passage, Revelation 21:1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old earth, um, uh, old heaven and old earth had disappeared. It's interesting. This tells us of God's vision for a new heavens and a new earth. The entire creation completely renewed and restored. Why? You remember what happened in the garden? The fall in the garden that brought sin into the world divided humanity from God, divided animal from humanity, divided animals from animals. They started killing each other. It divided humanity from itself, from other, human, um, other humans. It also divided humans within from their own selves. The divide between myself. The fall was such an epic event that ended with Cain killing Abel, um, his brother Abel, in the, the book of Genesis. That the entire cosmos was affected by the sin that happened in that story, in that narrative found in Genesis. It makes sense why God would want to make a new heaven and a new earth. And it, it, it makes sense that God doesn't say, oh, well, <laughs> You guys really messed it up. Let me throw it away. Who cares about the earth? Ecology? You know? Uh, taking care of animals? God told them to name the animals. The original human vocation was to tend to the earth and to be like God in his image, creating and bringing order to disorder giving purpose to things, bringing fruitful and multiply, and sin just messes it up. So God loves his creation and promises to bring it back on track and back to what he wants it to be. That is why a new heavens and a new earth. Let's continue. It tells us about a city. Um, in Revelation 21, 22, it says this, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Why are temples interesting in this perspective? Like, why do temples exist? Humans have built temples for all kinds of gods. Why are temples so criti like, critical in the, in the story of the Bible? Is because temples are the place where heaven and earth meet together. Temples are that, it's like a portal. It's that place where deity and humanity meet together. Kind of like you. Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Amen. That God dwells with you? Just like Ruth said, because, or, or was it Emily, that because Jesus is in my heart. The moment that we take from the Lord's Supper is a temple moment. 
It's when heaven meets earth. It's when we commune with God, come and have union, communion with God. Temple is, the, the temple imagery is all over the Bible, especially in the life of Israel. Or the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. That any major event, the monarchy, in front of the monarchy would be the Ark of the Covenant. God would go before his people into everything. So God promises that one day he will exist with humanity in a new, renewed reality, new heavens and new earth. Amen. Revelation 21, 23 says this, just to make sure that we hit this home. And the city has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb, which is Jesus, is its light. Oh my gosh, can you imagine that day? One day God will fully, fully live with humankind in a renewed earth that will no longer bear the scars of the fall of Adam and Eve, death, violence, and suffering. Why? Because God's very own presence will be so near to us that it will be like the light around us, causing us to see God and to see all things because of God. This is God's vision. This is what we call in theology language, Christian eschatology, or what we call the study of the end of days or end, of, um, end times. Church, this is where God is taking the world, straight up. This is where God is taking the world. We're not doing good things to wait to escape, wait for that train, you know. People, get ready. There's a train coming. Let's just get out of here. Because the earth, man, oh, this is so much sin, Woo. so much gossip, Woo. so much pain. People just don't respect each other anymore. What happened to the morals and the ethics these days? Goodness gracious. Let's just get on out of here because we are going home. Actually, Jesus is coming back to renew the earth. And he calls the church in his prayer, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We are called to colonize the earth with the presence of heaven. Amen. I hope that shifts some of our thinking this morning. Time is drifting all of us towards this redemptive future reality. So we can say it like this. God's vision is to fully renew and restore all creation to himself, to God's very own presence. This is God's grand, grand vision for the world and for the people that he created. And for this reason, for this reason, for this vision, God becomes a missional God. For this reason, God becomes a missional God. For this vision, God now becomes a missional God to accomplish his task. Amen. Amen. Can you say this after me? Our God is a missional God. Our God is a missional God. Yes, he is. What do you hear when you hear the word mission? Maybe before today. For some of you, it might be like, oh, mission tacos or uh, mission tortillas. <laughs> Amen to that. Or maybe Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise. Come on now, 
Yes. Although Top Gun kind of solidified it for me. Praise the Lord. Or maybe you're thinking of like the Los Angeles mission or the San Diego mission. Or maybe a mission trip that you went on to. Or maybe your parents were missionaries and you were born somewhere else. I don't want to assume anything. We all come with different ideas of what mission means to us. My desire is that this vision would shape our idea of mission today for you and for I. For some, mission was a great memory of generosity and faithfulness like in my family story. And as, and as a church, we get the privilege, our church, right here, to support many missionaries around the world and around the nation that are doing great things for the kingdom of God. And we're very proud of that. Right, Don? He shook his head. Amen. Amen. Amen, Don. For some others, mission is associated with some of the worst parts of Christianity, though. Thinking what? The word mission highlights legacy of ignorance, power, conquest, manipulation, and violence, all in the name of God. The African Archbishop um, Desmond Tutu um, said this, when missionaries came to Africa, they had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us pray. We closed our eyes and prayed. When we opened them, we had the Bible and they had our land. So it's important that as a church, as the body of Christ, that our perspectives are shaped. And know that our perspectives are shaped and words have meaning that are tied to narratives. That is why words matter and language matters. One thing that I really love about our pastors, Pastor David and Pastor Jeff, um, Pastor Rebecca, is that in, in every sermon and every uh, time that the gospel is presented, we hammer out language to try to be as articulate as we can because language matters. So as a church, my friends, my brothers and sisters, we need to practice cultural intelligence. We talk about IQ and EQ, but cultural intelligence is just as important. With all its positives and its historical challenges, mission seems to be the best word we've got. It comes from the Latin Latin word missionem, which means the act of sending, dispatching, releasing, to let go, which originated in the 1500s with the uh, Jesuits, uh, the Catholic Jesuits, when they sent their priests into all the world to share the gospel. The truth is, Christians have done mission since the days of the New Testament. The book of Acts is clear on that. But since God is a missional God, mission can be defined as this. This is my working definition of mission. You can write it down if you want. It is the joining in God's action and purposes in the world. Mission is joining in God's action and purposes in the world. Why? Because God's grand vision requires a radical mission. And for a long, long time, for a long, long time, at least about 1,200 years, the idea of mission began with the identity of the church. The idea of mission began with the identity of the church. Based on the Great Commission found in Mark 16, 15, that says this, and then he, Jesus, told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Makes sense, right? right? It does make sense. I mean, these were the last words of Jesus to his disciples. And so the last 1,200 years, the idea of mission 
has become deeply rooted in the life of the church based on the last few words of Jesus called the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, no doubt, is vital to mission. However, today I'm going to be a rebel, a little bit of a rebel. My, my aim is to expand our view of mission, friends, beyond just the last few words of Jesus. Pretty bold, right? I want us to look at mission today. I want to challenge us to see it in two different ways. First, rather than approaching mission from the lens of the church, I want to challenge you and I to approach mission from the lens of the entire life and ministry of Jesus, not just the last words. Second, rather than approaching mission today from the lens of the last few words of Jesus called the Great Commission, I want to challenge us to, um, to approach the lens of mission from the, incarn- from, the, from the incarnation of Jesus. What's the incarnation? Thanks for asking. The incarnation is, is, a, is a church word for God becoming flesh. Carnal, carnate, it's a Latin word. It means that God incarnated stepped into humanity, took on human flesh, became one of us. That is called the incarnation. So if you think that Christmas is about like sweet baby Jesus found in the, uh, the Italian Nights movie, or you know, little baby, baby, cute little Jesus, he's so cute. Ooh. It's way bigger than that. It's Jesus, God who spoke worlds with words into being, stepped into a human suit came into our world. Remember, it's not just about us. It's about the cosmos as well, the entire creation. God loves his creation, his project, way too much to let it go sideways. It's his baby. He called it good. Do you remember that? He called it good. So, but humanity is his prize because nothing else in all of creation was made to reflect and to represent his image in the world, like humans do. Now, because of God's grand mission, the mission, the missional God, entered into the world, became part of humanity, incarnated, took on flesh, and fully entered the human condition in the person of Jesus Christ. So what does mission look like? God's mission looks like Jesus. Friends, what does mission look like? God's mission looks like Jesus. Let's dive in. John 1, 14 says this. The word became flesh incarnate and made his home among us. We have seen the glory, his, his glory, glory like that of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus did not proclaim the gospel from heaven. He could have done that. Hey! I'm the only way. You know, give my Charlton Heston voice. Moses. And all of a sudden, oh, thank you. I love that gospel. Thank you. It came from above. He could have done that, but he didn't. By looking at Jesus, we see the clearest example of what God desires and is doing in the world. 
God is a missional God, therefore we, the church, are created to be a missional community. Let me say it again. God is a missional God, and so therefore we as a church are called to be a missional community. Is God on a mission in our world? Absolutely. Or is he only involved once a week and out for an hour and a half on a, on a Sunday morning inside of a building? When the church stops being missional, it almost always moves into maintenance. When the church stops being missional, it almost always moves into maintenance. When the church stops being concerned with the world outside of its walls, it will instinctively focus inward and concern itself with making its members happy by unintentionally turning spirituality into a commodity for its consumers. Let me say it again. When the church stops being concerned with the world outside of its walls, it will instinctively focus inward and concern itself with making its members happy by unintentionally turning spirituality into a commodity for its consumers. God's missional community gathers Sundays or other days, and God's missional community scatters. We become incarnational just like Jesus. It, posi it positions itself where the lost and the vulnerable are. It moves and mobilizes in average everyday places outside of these walls. My friends, sentness is the characteristic of the church that is so easily lost. Jesus tells us in our passage, John 20, 21, this is what he says. Will you read it with me? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. In the Gospel of John alone, Jesus identifies himself over 40 times as being sent. Um, Archbishop um, William Temple says this, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Let me say it again. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. So how do we become a missional community? Fair question to ask. Well, if Jesus is what God's mission looks like, then we follow his example. Here are two simple tasks. You know, I, I, there was a lot that I prepared and I, there was a lot that I did, didn't put in. I wanted this message to be as practical as we can, as, as it could be, as simple and as di digestible, easy to hold on to. So, I'm not a good Baptist today. I'm, it's only a two-point message. So, Two simple tasks to help us step into God's mission. You ready? All right. So the first is, the mission of God shares proclamation. The mission of God shares proclamation. And then second is, the mission of God shows demonstration. The mission of God shows demonstration, right? Let's talk about the first. The mission of God shares this is the proclamation part. A missional community is a community that always, is always ready to jump into the story. What story? Here's something that's worked for me, and I, I've done this for maybe two decades, 
Maybe because it comes natural, but it works, and I think it's really, it's really important that we not look at mission as just, just saying good things to people and hoping the seats fall. There are three important stories that I want us to remember in every interaction that you and I have with those that don't know Jesus. First, get to know their story. The first, get to know their story. The second, share your story. The second, share your story. That's why the girls were up here sharing their story. Third, if there's time, because you can't do it all in one, one setting. If the opening is there, share God's story. Share God's story. We have looked at mission as the other way around. Go and share God's story. And sometimes that's very necessary. I'm not I'm knocking it down. I'm just adding to it. But what's the point of sharing God's story when you have no idea about their story? Ask questions. Be curious. Get to know them. Get to know their life, their family. Why? Because it shows we care. If, you aren't if we aren't interested in getting to know them first, then we have no business talking about Jesus. We're not selling used Cadillacs here. We're loving people one conversation at a time. And Pastor Steve, you do such a great job at that. You inspire me every time that you talk to anyone or you talk to me, you always just infuse the person that you talk to with so much encouragement. And I love that. I want to be like that every day. When looking at the Gospels, Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom to crowds. He proclaimed, preach the good news to the crowds. But oftentimes, on an, indiv on an individual one-on-one -on -one basis, he would ask them their story. He would ask him questions like, who do you think I am? He would get personal. Where's your husband? I have no husband. The woman at the well. He would get personal. And so it's important to look at mission of God as proclamation, as something that is about their story before it is about God's story or even your story. Now don't be intimidated it's very easy to maybe get a little nervous. Well, what am I going to ask? Maybe they're successful people. They pull up in a BMW and you're like, oh my gosh. I drive a Yugo. What do I have to offer them? Well, don't be intimidated. Successful people often give up a lot to gain success. I remember um, Whitney Houston, one of the most incredible voices of all time, when she passed away, one of her friends said in an interview that it wasn't the medication that killed her. It was a broken heart. She never felt truly loved or known. Get to know them. At the core of humanity, all we want is to be known and to be seen. Second, share your story. How has Jesus altered your life? Where was your life going prior to Jesus? And how has it changed? And the third, in Acts 4.20 it says, As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Share, your, share God's story. You don't need to have a PhD. You don't need to have a sanitized life. 
Missional people are heralds of the good news. What's the good news? And why is it good news for them? Well, remember God's grand vision, that God isn't angry with the world. For God so hated the world that he sent his son to condemn it? That's not what we find in the Bible. So much so that God entered, he loved it, so much so that he would enter into the world, liberating it from its oppression, giving hope to the hopeless, uplifting the forgotten, dying on a cross to demonstrate his love, resurrecting on the third day to show the God's grand vision and what he wants to do for all of creation and all who call Jesus Lord. Now, for those of you that might be thinking, how about sin? They're living in sin. We got to tell them that they're wrong. Well, you start off with their story. If you start off with the sin, you're kind of stepping into God's territory prematurely. So don't be Holy Spirit Junior. You don't have to do that. My answer would be relax. The gospel isn't a message of sin management. It's a message of transformation that takes time and it's done by the work of the Holy Spirit within the inner life of the person. Once their taste buds change, then they start eating different things. That's just how it works. So, listen to their story, share your story, and share God's story. The next, next task is gospel demonstration and our last point. The mission of God shows demonstration. The, this task is probably the most difficult and maybe the most crucial. Why? We need to look at the life of Jesus. The writer of Luke says this in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. What does this look like? Luke 4.18-20 says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me, this is what Jesus says, He has sent me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of our Lord. When we look at Jesus' life, we see Jesus' mission addresses the needs of the poor and the needy. Jesus' mission addresses those who have no medical care and those who are sick and needed healing. Jesus' mission addresses the hunger that many of the poor were constantly faced. Jesus' mission confronted those with power who used it to keep people captive. Jesus' mission of an upside-down kingdom proclaimed that the poor were blessed, meanwhile offending the rich and those loaded with security. Jesus' mission invited his followers to be peacemakers, willing to suffer if necessary, willing to be misunderstood if needed be, love their enemies, to bless those who curse them, 